in this 153rd episode entitled It's the Season Now, Focus, Effort, Recovery. Do you like that? I like that. Okay. Seconds away from a sub two-hour marathon. Lessons from Bioracer Aero. Brownlee A goes 341. Flash wetsuit, clean chains, lastminute.com. And lessons from Time Crunch book. So, welcome to the 10th year of the Coach Joe Beer Motorsport Podcast. Welcome to the 10th year of the Coach Joe Beer Motorsport Podcast for triathletes, duo athletes, sportive riders, road racers, time trialists, runners, mountain bikers, and fitness enthusiasts. Whatever your distance and whatever your event, this podcast aims to make you smarter and faster. We are supported by No Pin Supplies of Club, Custom and Aero Cycle Clothing and Triathlon Apparel, all made in Devon. Visit website nopins.com. Also supported by southfoxracing.co.uk for all your biking needs from great brands such as Tax, Park, Infocrank, GoPro, Continental, Beat It, Powerbar, Scott and many, many others. Visit southforkracing.co.uk. I'm Coach Joe Beer and I'm joined once again by Confucius Crocker at SFR in the house. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You doing good? Very good. Very good. Yeah, not 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 bad at all. So we are here. Uh, it's Friday. Um, we are actually recording this. Are we allowed to give a date out? Yes. So it's uh, Friday, the nineteenth of uh, May. Um, so currently we're looking outside. The sun's out. Uh, the traffic is heavy, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're sat here recording this today live. 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 For anybody that listens to the time trial podcast they may already be aware but there's two episodes that i contributed to and if you're into time trialing or learning from time trialing and taking the lessons for your sport it is episodes 92 and 99 there's a great resource there lots of uh great experts on all different areas of uh, cycling so it's gone to uh, any part of the internet and look up Time Trial Podcast and you will find it there. I think we jump straight into a question. Go for it. This one's from, uh, actually it wasn't a question, it was, it was a comment um, from somebody. It was, and it was from Neil Reynolds. He said, hi Joe, just want to say a big thank you for confirming what I was doing is right. I listened to the Cycling Time Trial Podcast last week and was relieved to find out that smashing myself to bits on the turbo isn't what I should be doing. Um, even though all my mates seem to be doing some kind of virtual turbo sessions, I'm mainly doing TTs, the odd road race. Um, over the winter, I just stick to 80%. I don't know why until last week, but it just felt right. I also stopped going out on club runs. As you said, they just turned into a race. Everything you said, I do, but didn't realise why until your podcast. I'm very grateful that, you've, uh, that you gave and continue to train that way uh, as I have been already doing. Thank you. And that was from, uh, that was from Neil. And it's, it's just one of those things where... My thought is there's a lot of lack of confidence in, in people's methods. So they just do what the mate does or just do it a bit harder than last week or just do even more of it. And to give people a little bit of a framework, because you can't tell everybody 
uh, how to do it because they're all different, but give them a little bit of a framework. And I think the 80-20 gives you a very doable but very profitable ratio to work to. And some people never do 20% hard work. They'll do 10% hard work and they're super fit. But it's it's defining that you don't need to have every day as an effort day. And there are people that totally, totally are flummoxed by that. They just really cannot understand it. It frustrates the hell out of them. But the proof's in the pudding. And this is, this is a method born from lots of... Uh, professionals lots of research lots of anecdotes and lots of years of um of, of training it's not so you don't do hard work having done a, a, a time trial last night having what we're doing base session tomorrow morning then got another hard session early next week i'd like to mix it up because i think it'd be boring just to do the base stuff but i think people lack that confidence so when people try it and get the results it's really nice to hear from them well we were chatting the other day about the, the very basic of, of sports psychology from people not having the confidence in their own ability and not having the confidence in uh, what they were doing, you know, always comparing it to a, to a friend that's faster than them, fitter than them, mm. and it's always been the case. But I think sometimes you almost need to back it down. And just go right. Well, this is what these are the these are the, the the DNA makeup that I have, and let's give it a try. You know, mm. let's let's go in, let's go all in. I will do the eighty twenty, and just have the confidence that a, I think it's going to work. I have a coach that knows, you know, what he's doing, what she's doing, and you know, let's let's go with it. Let's do it. And I think what happens sometimes is people don't have the confidence in it and go, yeah, but my mate's doing, you know, doing the ultra hard stuff, and he's doing, you know four or five sessions a day of, yeah. of the really hard bits and bobs. And, you know, he's he's faster than me, she's faster than me. You know, why are we doing the right thing? I think the basic psychology of that is you've almost got to go deep breath. Let's immerse myself in this. This is the right way. This is the way I want to train. And then kind of yeah. go with it. And this, this follow-up, this was another, this was sent on 10th of May. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's from... Carl Matthews, and he said, Hello, just listen to the Psych and Title podcast. Fascinating and informative. Thank you. Looking back over the years, I've fallen into the sweet spot zone for most of my cycling. So very keen to modify my training and follow your white paper. So my question is, I only use a power meter and being a skinny climber, I don't or haven't done any peak power efforts. So do you have any guidelines as to how 80% max heart rate relates to my 255 watt FTP or should I really be using a heart rate monitor for zone one riding as I guess there are many little rises etc where you put out a bit more power for a few seconds but the heart rate does not respond as much many thanks for help kind regards Carl he's hit the nail on the head you don't you know you do not have to for, for people that are cycling and I realize we get different people from different sports but you don't you don't have to just sit there every ride staring at staring at what it will tire you out you will be pushing too hard too often and Carl you've hit the nail on the head sometimes all you're doing is to try and stay below your 80% of max and it's not at 80% of max it's below 80% of max people that always want to try and squeeze every bit out that are trying to get right on that number or very close to it, it's like no on days when you're tired, days when you're perhaps recuperating, days when perhaps you are coming back from, uh, you know, that, that sore throat, that period away, etc., etc., um, you need to come in at it at a lower level just to let your body respond. 
So I think, yes, Carl, use a heart rate monitor. And you did say, you know, how, how, how does the 80% max heart rate relate to my 255 watt FTP? Uh, for those that um, perhaps aren't necessarily um, conversant with that, that means, assuming that Carl's got the definition right, that 255 watts is his assumed one hour power that he could hold if he was doing a one hour climb, one hour flat, it hold 255. Now, sometimes people do a 20 minute test and call it their FTP, but unfortunately that is not your FTP. But if we have your um, your 255 for your um, one hour car, I reckon you've probably got a max test of around 340 um, watts. So your uh, zone one is probably up to and including about 170, maybe 180 watts at times, but it's there or thereabouts. And it's anything below that. And so you don't tend to ride on the watts as ride on the, okay, am I, am I in zone? And if you're in zone, that's a positive, that's like a binary, you're in there, good. If you go to watts, well, of course, last week I did 175, so, so I'll try and do 180 this week. I think that's the downside, don't you reckon? Of people riding watts within their, you know, you might have a test session, but within base work, it's better to ride on heart rate. Again, we this is something that we discussed um, about the, the the psychology or the psyche of an athlete. And when you're training up to your event, if you said zone one, the top of your zone one was 170, 180 watts. For some reason, you push yourself to 170, 180 watts. All right, it's still in zone one. But if it was after your event and you turn to a, a client that you coached and just went, right, well, I need you to, to, to do your zone one, I'll guarantee you that the wattage will be 140, 150. It'll be lower. What what changes is, mm. is, is kind of what we were saying in, the, in someone's psyche where you just think, well, zone one is zone one. Mm. So, you know, if you're training in that zone, being the upper part of the zone, you know, isn't ultimately going to make you fitter, quicker, it's going to make you faster, going to make you stronger, you know, you are still in zone one, I get that, but, um, you know, your psyche changes from building up to your event to then kind of finishing your event and going into recovery, why why that is different, but also added to that is the fact that when you do your hard sessions, your hard sessions are your best sessions, pretty mm. much, building up to your event, I think that's where um, after we were, Joe and I were chatting, we we think people should be leaving it about there. But with reference to to Carl, it is good to switch between the power meter to switch between the heart rate monitor. So I think sometimes people ultimately power power is king. Yeah. Is, is is kind of the the way to look at it. But people tend to lose track of how the heart reacts to mm. the to the power. And I think ultimately that gives you a better all-round knowledge of how your body reacts, how your training's going, when you can put the heart rate to the power. Mm, and, yes. and that kind of knowledge gives you more yeah. gives you more power, if you pardon the pun, yeah. um, to control what you do, to know when you maybe have gone too hard, gone too slow, getting ill, you know, a little bit tired. I think once you have all that knowledge together, you kind of think, well, my heart rate does that when I'm a bit tired and, you know, my power drops off, the heart rate goes up through there. So I think if you kind of keep an eye on both, then, you know, you get a better understanding of how your body reacts yeah, once yeah. you start to and train. And to do, I think, to do benchmarks, uh, if he's got power, let's assume you've got, 
a turbo trainer car. You can do like, you know, 100, 125, 150, 175, 200, 225 watts. Do, do a ramping up, do three minutes on each ramp so that you get to an equilibrium and see what the heart rate is. Then perhaps go out and on the road, do a, do a few climbs, do a climb, you know, do a 12 minute climb or whatever length of climb you can do, not, not too long, but do, you know, do a moderate climb and do it sort of at FTP. Um, do another one where you try and stay perhaps in zone one and then do one where you do an absolute time trial effort. So you can look at your fitness across various ways. If you do a really hard time trial effort and you are light and you get it right and up that climb that day you get you know a PB and therefore you'll be in you know, zone two and or three uh, and it shows how oh, good I'm fit. But you can look at, and the other day I got a, a nice email from somebody and said, yeah, it's working, it's working. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting the base level. I can now almost do 200 watts and stay in my zone one. And, we, and I sort of said, I reckon you can do 175, but you know, 200 weird push. And almost did it, but not quite. But to have that sort of confidence from just sitting on a turbo is much better than trying to get confidence via, can I drop that person or, or am I going to stay ahead of that person next time we go out and train or whatever? You know, training is training. Unless it's training with specific efforts in it, what you've got to watch is you don't get your heart rate or power confidence from pushing people in a session that's not meant to be pushing. Whereas if you go out and you say, right, I've got this eight minute climb, I'm going to do it once at the top of zone one once at threshold and then once flat out and just give yourself a way of looking at your fitness because you've got the power you can use heart rate as well but don't don't muddy it don't go off on a base session and start thinking i better turn this into a high intensity one get the get the um you know get the right aspects of training and yes power and heart rate can show varying into relationships depending on whether you're feeling tired strong whether you've done a long ride and are recovering or whether you've done a short high intensity and still can't quite push there's lots of dynamics i don't think there's any one number but if you've got benchmarks you know where you're at and the numbers the numbers don't lie if you if you are very tired if you can't climb as quick if your heart rate does look um look like it's not really responding very well and also i'm a very um very much a, a sort of follower of the uh, HRV, the, the resting heart rate. That really is good for people that can't always determine where they're at. HRV, sorry, Joe. Heart rate variability, the difference between the uh, difference between the, the, the rate and, if you like, the consistency of the heart rate. The more that it fluctuates and doesn't beat exactly the same amount of gap time, the more that that gap time varies, the better. But it's 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 out there. It's quite easy to to get it on most uh, heart monitors. Sometimes just with a simple belt, you can certainly get. As I've got on uh, here, as you will see, Martin, I've got is it athlete on my uh, there we go athlete. Right, yeah. So so the word athlete, but with the I um, at the beginning of it, and that can also tell you are you recovering well? Have you still got a cold? Is your body, it's not perfect. I've had people that are definitely not right and their HRV says, actually, it's okay. So you, you still got to listen to your body and interpret it. The same as you could have okay data, but say, do you know what? I'm really tired. But some interesting questions there, I think, Carl. There's, there's a lot that we need to sometimes do to keep ourselves on track and if you've got a model and you've got some idea of where you should be nothing better than doing a set workload and going wow my heart rate's really low and i feel really good and correspondingly it can tell you you're not in the right place and you will um you will uh, 
you, you will almost know that the numbers are telling you what you know. Um, hey, insider news. Right. Don't look at me like that. The two hour and 24 second marathon. Did you see it? I saw a very um, broken down kind of um, pricey. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, <clears throat> so this was Nike. This was Nike trying to get three athletes to break the two hour, two hour barrier. barrier. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Did, was it? Did you see bits of it? Did you see like the? For those that didn't see it, they had a, a lead car with a clock, but that lead car also shone on the ground a laser line of where the echelon of runners should be running, so they could purposely um, actually cover the air, make it more aerodynamic for the for the three guys running behind. And of course, that you know that made it somewhat easier. But so too does you know Chris Froome sitting behind in a. Um, in a you know in a in a, in a big uh, Tour de France type scenario, and so too for those, and I'm I'm a real um, I'm a real uh, pedantic person on the Bannister record. You know they'd done an attempt before he did the attempt. In the attempt itself to break the four minute mile, he had pacemakers. They'd worked out. You know they they even used a sort of an not an unofficial. Um, event, but it was a quite a low key event where they knew they could do a mile and it would probably work. Um, they'd also tipped off reporters to be there, so it was all no, it was as much planned as you could do. Special shoes were made; they're extremely lightweight shoes that Bannister had at, at the time. So there's all these things that were brought together, and the, and uh, Chris Chatterway and um, I think Chatterway and the other guy Brasher, Brasher, Chris, Chris, Chris Brasher and Chris Chatterway. I think they're both Chris's. They ran. They had set jobs to do, keeping him out of the wind, and then he broke the four-minute mile. So even that had an element of pushing the, you know, pushing the boundaries to have pacemakers. But this Nike attempt and the one where um, Kip Coach, you know, he was 25 seconds off. You think that is so close. Because at one point I was watching it about an hour 30, hour 35 in, I was like, he's got this. It's still predicting he can come under. And then he just started to falter slightly. And the, the pacemakers were running ahead of him a bit. So he, he, he was surged, he had to surge to keep up. Up to then, it was just textbook. They had the, you know, the lines on the floor, they had the guys riding along on the bikes. And at a certain feed zone, they'd give him a tiny little sports bottle. He'd squeeze it in and throw it. And there was three of them doing it. The other two weren't um, as successful. They still ran pretty well. Um, but it was really good. And, and for me, it showed what you could do if you got all the science together. They used Monza track, which was super flat, only 10 feet of elevation per lap. I mean, it, was, it wasn't cheating. He didn't run downhill. He still had to run it. But to see somebody running at 13 miles an hour for two hours, I mean, boy, I, oh boy. I think if you, if you broke it down to its... To its figures. Now, yeah. I think I saw 5K, no, it might have been 10K time splits of of how they were staying on the pace. Yeah. And and there was, um, I think it was the, so it must have been 15K from the end where he just slipped a couple of seconds. Yeah. Um, it's four minutes, then, 34 per mile. And, and like I said, if you take those little figures and break it down per mile, per K, yeah. whatever, or, or, or its overall speed, it's yeah. right. And what was good was, you know, somebody's run, the, the one of the other runners was the world record holder for the half. I think his time, it's not 57, is I think it's 58. It's like a long 58 or something like that. But, of course, they didn't go through the record pacing at that Point. So the half marathon record was safe because they went through and um, actually one of them even then was falling off before the hour mark. 
But as they went on, there was a point where they suddenly went, nobody's run this fast, this long. And you suddenly went like goosebumps, went, oh my Lord, he's going into a completely different area. Nobody's run at this speed. Even his world record wasn't at that speed. So, you know, he went down from, you know, a two hour two and is it two hour two forty eight or there thereabouts, you know, and then went down to two hours and twenty four seconds. And suddenly you could see they thought, we can probably do this. You know, this isn't it had been thought of and and okay, it wasn't a pure race, it wasn't a standard marathon, it wasn't London Marathon, and therefore it was a, a set up event. But he was still running at 13 miles an hour. And I think when when people look at it, the only way you can bring all this on is to see how they do it. And then to think, right, if people are going to get world records, they're going to need, um, I mean, they had something like 30 odd runners that would drop in and drop out of that pacing. And how you saw how they come in and sort of funnel in and run at the run at the side and then the next group would move off. I mean it was it was brilliant of what they'd done to perfect it. It was, certainly wasn't, you know, a cobbled together one. They'd done a one hour test of it. You know, everything was right. They started with the right temperatures and all these things. And I I, I just really it really got me excited because like the four minute mile was one of the things that um, reading back on the accounts of it seemed amazing. And we were that close to suddenly all over the all over the press would have been a man's just run you know for for a marathon under two hours the fact he didn't get it just meant it kind of well you couldn't say a man's almost because that's like no we didn't want we didn't want to know when people almost got to the moon we wanted to know when they did well, they did yeah. but, th- but then if you go in i saw i can't remember whether it was a something that you would put on to facebook or twitter um but basically the uh, the the dynamics of the air dynamics the flow of of air and why they ran in the position they did behind the car um and that was that was fascinating mm. to see where they had worked it all out from from an aero yeah. point of and view. they weren't right behind the car if you i mean go to facebook look up the nike account and then look down their videos and you'll see it it says you know no, no longer live but it's a it's almost a three hour event in total because they have some preamble they have the record attempt they have um, really good insight from some experts actually into the into the whole thing but i think it's just that whole science thing together bringing all the science in and having a science um of running if you like they had you know special shoes he had you know more compression based shorts they had pacemakers they had feeding they had you know the right temperature of the location and everything so it wasn't it wasn't just a hope for it was a lot of things and the fact he got within 24 seconds if he'd been you know still had a minute to go they'd go oh we got a lot of work to do 24 seconds if you can get perhaps several people that can run and all start running at 202 and then start saying right we need to now run at 201 it pushes up that possibility of how fast can somebody run then in a marathon at London, at Berlin, any of the races, because they're starting to go, well, it is actually possible. Well, as long as you get enough pacemakers. And and also, they were taking fuel, like most people would never take fuel that regularly. You no, know, he was taking swigs every time they came around, thinking they are no longer doing the classic runner thing of, oh, I don't want to touch anything because it make me have a stitch. It's like, if you want to run fast, you've got a fuel. But also, if you take into account, it was, what, 24, 25 seconds. So if you took a second off a mile... yeah. You know, that's in its yeah. in its very in my simplest form. Yeah, it's a second. So four thirty four. So that's uh, 
274 seconds and you've got to take one off. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's roughly a third of a percent. I mean, it's so like, wow. Do we just need a couple more people to the side of him to take even more air? Do we, um, you know, do we have to do it where he has a cold slushy beforehand to kick his core temperature down? Does he actually have to run a positive split is he better to run literally to halfway to halfway in 59 minutes and then know that he's going to fatigue a minute in the second part do you see what i mean yeah. knowing he'll slow down a bit and he didn't seem to slow down that much it is just you saw him about an hour 40 he started to just drift off the back of the pacemakers and he was doing it each time that the new pacemakers came in but this was on one of the other bits of the course and go oh yeah and because i knew at that point that he wasn't going to make it it actually looked like whoa how is he going to come back from this? But he did. And the pacemakers were still trying to stay with the car. And they had a professional um, racing driver drive at exactly the right speed. Because, of course, he had to drive perfectly. They couldn't have an electric. They had to have somebody driving. They had to have a human driving it. Not, um, it couldn't be just like an electric vehicle. So, yeah, it was really interesting. And if you haven't seen it and you're into sort of records and things, he's still the fastest person ever to run 26 miles. You know, still, you think, two hours. Set your treadmills at 13 miles an hour and, uh, and strap Hold yourself on. in. <laughs> strap Hold yourself on. in. Put a um, gun shield in. Slightly less fast, but also also um, certainly quick, was uh, Ali Brownlee's uh, debut over the 70.3 distance. He'd done a challenge event, but he did 70.3 in the US Champs and did 341. Um, yeah, he did win by 33 seconds from a charging... Um, uh, one of the American guys, you know, sort of was charging him down. Now, did he know that he had his 33 seconds and he just ran to do enough? Or is he still finding that pace judgment? Don't know. I've not heard the, the post-race interviews, but still, 3.41, people moving up from the Ironman, sorry, from the uh, Olympic distance, draft legal racing to, in this case, you know, a half Ironman distance. That's still something. I still think he ran a 114 I think. Wow. 114. I think he outbiked everybody and did pretty much bang on two hours. Um, he's on one of these. And there's a, there's a Scott behind us at the moment. He's on one of these. He's on the plasma. plasma. Yeah. Um, but 33 seconds. Close. Maybe it was just close enough. One second. So we one need second. To come on, what do you know? Insider info. Because I've got some stuff here, but come on. Um, I've got... Uh, we are going to get to see... Uh, funny enough, leading on from our last podcast, talking about tubeless road tyres or road oh, wheels. Oh, not tyres. Yeah, I know. It's me now. It's me yeah, it's you. Yeah, I've never um, said anything about tyres. <laughs> I didn't say anything about the our, you know, the tyres no. at all. So... Um, we get to see next week um, a few sneaky peeks of uh, a couple of different brands that have gone into tubeless tyres or rims or, you know, wheel tyre combinations. So hopefully we get to see that next week. I'll have a couple of uh, sneaky uh, pictures that I can share with Joe with a bit of luck. Um, you, have to, you have to tell me whether I can sneak them out or yeah, not. Don't, don't give them to me and then I go, I've just done what? You didn't tell me. You didn't tell me. Other than that, there's not a massive amount that we've seen just yet, um, but there are a few other items that we are waiting to get confirmation of, A, when we can see it, mm-hmm. um, and B, whether we're allowed to take pictures mm-hmm. and stick it out there, so on the old uh, World Wide Web. So um, mostly uh, bits and bobs from Scott. Um, we've also had... Are we allowed to say we're going to... Um, I think we said that last, last did time we, we did the podcast anyway. Did we? Oh, okay. So yeah. um, I was I was trying to get some uh, sneaky peeks of some new bikes, but uh, obviously that's all 
under hash, wraps. Hash, That's hash, all under wraps. Um, so as it stands currently, we're we're kind of we're in that part of the the season or the part of the um, the bike industry season where everything's kind of come in. Um, you know, people are salivating over the new kit. Um, and most of it is A, either readily available or B, sold out, (laughs) (laughs) which seems to be the case. And we haven't got to the August, September Interbike Eurobike where we see everything for next year. For next year. So we're right at the end of this year going into sort of next year in in terms of the products that will be there. But also um, we've had a few people on the uptake of HRV, um, yeah. For that, so that that's quite interesting because the more people that use it, the more information uh, you know the guys, especially if the guys from iThleet can get, uh, that can you know make things a little bit better, a bit more accurate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's kind of that's looking quite good, and a few more converts to to power um, and how to train with power and why you train with power. So um, other than that, it's been quite quite steady, really. So all pretty good. I was going to say, um, there's something, because I thought we did something about this. And I thought, oh, we haven't heard any more. Alex Dowsett, there was this, you know, attempt of the hour record. We, we spoke about it because something had been put out at some point. And it's like, oh, yeah, next year, blah, 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 blah. And suddenly I'm like, hmm. I remember writing about the hour record in peak performance because it was the 30th anniversary, we did about how it's progressed. And at that point, there was a rumour that, he was going to go for it again. And it seems to have been binned. I haven't heard anything about that or anybody going back and, and looking at it again at all. Nobody. Uh, I I guess really, I, well, the good thing is, is athletes themselves, I suppose, if they turn around and go, look, you know, it might only be something I can do once a year, yeah. you know, whether there's enough budget, um, you know, people like Movie Star, who uh, Alex, is, Alex Dowsett's sponsored by, they might have just gone, look, you know, we've got too much to concentrate on. We've got um, yeah. Quintana going for the double in the Giro, which is on now, um, and Tour de France. So they might have just gone, look, can we just put it on a back burner and maybe hit it mm. maybe closer to the end of the season or maybe the start of next season? Yeah, so maybe. Who, maybe. who knows? Who knows? There might even be a bit of technology that's coming out that, you know, a bike sponsor has gone, well, just hold your horses a minute. Mm. Um, you know, we might have something that we can add to this. And Well, there were changes to the UCI rules last year. And whether that's percolating through bikes, we haven't seen an amazing change in, you know, certainly not at the Giro in terms of what they're uh, using or or uh, secretly using. And you start to see, oh, that's a slightly different bike or slightly different wheel or slightly different tyre. But they're restricted with certain things, how they're allowed to do that, aren't they? They can kind of sort of test it, but they're not really meant to be testing it till they get the OK. Uh, one thing I was going to say, certainly this is one for the triathletes or for the swim runners that do the uh, Otilo and other type uh, race formats. Um, Wetsuit flushing. Now, I thought this was pretty common knowledge, okay, of, don't look at me like that. You're not, not, I'm not thinking what you're thinking. The idea that when you're putting a wetsuit on, it is a wetsuit, okay? If you put it on and it is dry, it is not going to move on to the right places uh, on your muscles correctly because it's not lubricated, it's not a wetsuit. And also that if it's not wet, you can't really warm it up as well. So wetsuit flushing is taking some warm-ish, just warm water, tipping it in the suit as you're putting the suit on and start to lubricate the inner part of the suit. Then you can shove it into place properly because you should get the suit properly placed. And as somebody that went to a pool and did a bit of testing recently, just said, wow, the moment that I got that suit on properly, I was seeing the speed differences 
because it was hoiked up high enough on the legs. It was mobile enough around the shoulders and suddenly I could swim in it. Whereas when it's dry, it's going to work against your skin and be more of a friction rather than a lubricant. But this is it's dead simple. Take your couple of bottles of warm liquid and flush your suit. Also then when you warm up before you get in the water, you're warming up your muscles, but that then will transfer into the liquid around you. So you're a bit warmer than somebody that jumps in, grabs the uh, neck of the suit and hoiks a load of cold water into their suit, only to now have cold water to, to uh, um, if you like, warm up. But also if you yank the suit open at the neck too often, you're going to start stretching it. If you put it in as you're putting the suit on and then get somebody to zip it up, you can already have the suit wet all around. And the warm water is there to not only lubricate, but for you to actually get warm as like an inner heater. And also means you're probably better from the point of view of um you're probably better from the point of view of, of like your mobility in the suit and what you feel is a more natural placement of the suit. Makes sense? Well, I suppose, I suppose also that it makes it more, makes it more supple. So, you know, yeah, like you said, it just kind of fits into the, into the spots where it's supposed to be. But the only wetsuit flushing that I uh, could think of was the fact that when you got home after swimming, surfing, that you just flushed the suit out to remove chlorine, so, uh, salt seawater and other other things that might go on in the wetsuit but that was the only, but that's that's not a bad tip sorry though. i've just watched somebody you've just watched them do quite an amazing parking maneuver outside the shop yeah congratulations all i can say congratulations don't read out the number plate okay <laughs> <Came> by <out. laughs> um time crunch try book watch out and try 247 uh, try247.com that's all i'm going to say Look out and try 247.com. Well, is there freebies? There's freebies. There will be. Are yeah. they giving up? What? Are they signed? No, not freebie books. Oh, just forget it. Yeah, I, I thought I'd given you one already. Right. Okay. Bioracer Aero. Lessons from the science of the Bioracer Aero. So this is a green screen. Imagine it. From a point about 10 feet on the wall, it curves down behind the turbo trainer and then comes out in front of the rider. The rider sits on the turbo trainer, faces the camera, and behind them they've got this big green screen. And then you can therefore get the camera to ignore the green screen, but get it to see the rider and their movements. And you move people around and it's cost effective compared to a wind tunnel session. It's... Um, even with travel, it's a couple of hundred quid that people put down as opposed to, you know, say more like a thousand pounds. But what I found is there's quite a few simple lessons that other people can gain from. And actually it, it starts to then percolate that we can learn from this. It's not just, you know, a secret science. It's still about the individual. There's still nothing like taking individual bike fit, individual training zones, individual power zones. You can't really learn just by grabbing everybody else's numbers. I think there's a certain personalization of it, yeah? So the the main process, sorry, the main process, the main point of doing this is to improve aerodynamics. It's to improve aerodynamics. And, and often, because this would be a, say, a triathlete, a duathlete, um, a time trialist, often aerodynamics is one of the key things that they're trying to hone in because they're not, say, um, a sportive rider looking for comfort. You can get sportive riders and, and, and not only show them what 
position would be ultimately their most error, but also show them how different deviations in position make a big difference. So you can actually teach people how to ride in more or less aerodynamic positions. Um, so firstly, few people have actually hit the buffers in terms of their aerodynamics, okay? Quite often the typical range is, is, is 10 to 25 watts. Now, yesterday I did saving. saving, a reduction for, and it doesn't matter what, what speed, it's, it's your speed. At your speed, this is what you gain. So this yeah, what you gain, effectively, you, you lose, lose less of your power <laughs> and therefore go quicker assuming the same power. And having done a, uh, a local uh, triathlete and time trialist yesterday, who I had a hunch the position was wrong and we sat there and we did it and we, we found actually upwards around 30 watts because the person was so in a wrong position that some of the rules that we do just looking at somebody change this change that and suddenly they're like wow that's more comfy wow my my my, my drag's my it's dropped whoa so i'm in a more comfortable position it's it feels better but also that um you get like a silhouette of the original point that's the silhouette wow i'm so much smaller than the original silhouette which straight away translates to you're pushing less air out of the way, therefore you are more aerodynamic. So the first thing is most people have not reached the buffers. You can hone yourself in. Secondly, overstretching is often a misconceived way to drop drag. It's bad for your comfort, but trying to reach too far forward, you can often look at somebody's bike and when they've got their tri bars and they're almost right out by the front of the front wheel, it's often a case of, whoa, that's a bit of a long bike and very few people can pull that off. So trying to stretch yourself long to be aero is definitely um, a misconceived way to try and reduce drag. Thirdly, helmets vary quite considerably in their actual size and comfort. Okay, that the area of the helmet is still one of the most important factors. This does not measure what happens to air. It is not running CFD, it is not a tunnel. It's not saying, you know, this is what the air does and it goes um, around uh, the helmet in this way, right? Recent research on helmets showed that even with the slight uh, ridges and dimples and stuff actually the surface area was a more important factor and what we found is until people put a helmet on in the position that something can be measured it's easy to look at somebody and go oh, oh that works and actually we tried yesterday two helmets and the first helmet that the rider was used to with a slight tweak that they were unaware that you could do internally to the helmet it sat on their back just perfectly their position suddenly was very, very good. And they were like, wow, that's comfortable and good. But you couldn't tell, you couldn't just say, oh, use this brand because this is the best one. It's how it fits on the rider. But and the, fundamentally, you can measure the differences and get them in the smallest helmet that they can get away with. But that's, that was the thing with working with Joe is, <coughs> excuse me, that we've realised is we do quite a few brands. We do quite a few different shaped aero helmets. Obviously, all of them are, are purporting to be the most aerodynamic yeah. to see. Or one of the... The most, yeah. most watts. But until your position on the bike is established, the helmet almost... And you might you can go to what could be one of the most unaerodynamic helmets to a certain degree, but if your position allows that to fit correctly with you, mm. it then all works together. So yeah, yeah, the helmet yeah. can't work on its own. No. It has to work with you. It's no two And they're so close it. as well. They're oh, so, they are, when yeah, people yeah. claim the difference is like they're really close when people improve on their helmets, it's but a factor of a small number of watts. 
And if the comfort and how it sits with that rider works, particularly with the vision with, with visors or with road aero helmets, you've still got to see when they've got it on, can they look and see the camera that we're taking the data from? Therefore, they can actually see um, what is effectively in front of them when they're riding. Uh, number four, was subtle changes open to, to many riders in terms of how they can change their, their hand position, the elbow position, etc. It can easily get you 10 watts just by a subtle tweak to the position but until you can see that in real time and try it which is the benefit the rider is seeing it in real time so if you say right move here move there they can see the number change therefore automatically they can aim for a number go ah right okay that's the position ah i can see that on the screen which is a benefit it gives you instant uh biofeedback so number five uh rolling resistance uh probably is about 40 watts um but on courses whereby you've got a really rough surface we've seen for the same amount of drag because we know the riders drag we've seen that climb by by uh easily up to 100 watts so that person and any other person cannot go as fast on that course if it's a really rough surface sorry that is the limiting factor because you can't get a tire to make that as fast as say a very smooth you know well-worn road with with you know virtually like you know a seamless um surface so although that doesn't relate to the aero side of it how somebody perceives rolling resistance can change how much they see is it about good tire choice and good position or is it all about position because tires aren't going to make that much difference assuming they're already on a fairly good tire i suppose into that you could add tire pressure as well oh yeah absolutely yeah tire pressure but then a, but then the, but that's a whole different day yeah, that's yeah, a whole yeah, different yeah. day whole different day <laughs> oh, that's a whole different week uh number six um don't be too high on the saddle um and don't be too tipped on the saddle because time and time again the most subtle of flattening of the saddle getting people onto a flat surface they can sit properly on often solves a lot of problems with shoulder comfort with being able to hold the aero position and also being able to handle the bike in um, tricky conditions if you're slipping forwards with lycra on a smooth saddle towards the handlebars that puts a lot of pressure on your quads that puts a lot of pressure on your arms and also it makes it makes you more front loaded um and I think if you're sat on the saddle, then you're actually going to be properly able to ride in an aero position. And it's sometimes two, three degrees. Mm -hmm. And it's so subtle. The person's like, I haven't really noticed it's a bit tipping. You tip it, they sit on it and go, whoa, that's a completely different bike. But again, there's something that, that we've learned, kind of, or us working with Joe, is, you know... I think you automatically assume that, you know, a completely flat saddle is always the best way to go. But sometimes with these, the different shaped saddles we've noticed now, even though they look, even though they look like they're tipping down nose, so say uh, the cutoffs so the ISMs and yeah. things like that, even though the, the cutoff nose saddles look like they're tipping down, they're not, they're flat from where the people sit. But again, if you don't have it 
relatively, like you said, two or three degrees, just that subtle yeah, change is yeah. enough to take a bit of weight off the front end. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if it's too much, if you're too light, sat too far back, then um, you can't get the power down. The steering's quite light. If you're too far forward, you keep slipping. You know, you're putting a load of weight on your arms, having to constantly adjust your mm-hmm. your position. Um, again, this is all dependent, I suppose, on saddle, yeah. um, you know, particular make, the style, uh, how far forward that you've got to have it. Um, again, you know, the importance of having a decent bike fit um onto a a bike that you're going to use regularly um i think people try and make these changes and go oh yeah i'll ride my time trial bike a little bit you know are you going to do your iron man on your time trial bike yeah we'll try riding it a bit more just get used to that position and making the change yeah Yeah. and one of the important uh developments on on that system is We've now got something available for people called training mode, which means that you can sit there and you can practice the certain positions that you need to. And then within a time scale, it'll tell you what percentage of time you're in the good, bad or or okay kind of position. And therefore you're you're practicing riding air. Wow. Which which from an outside point of view, you think ultimately you want to be able to monitor this somehow on a rider if somebody could put you know a couple of gps points in a helmet and work out where your head was it'd be brilliant because then you'd see people are higher or lower you i'm sure somebody will develop that very very soon but this is actually you sit there and you've got the turbo trainer and then it will it will look at your scenarios and it will it will watch the rider and as they move and they don't hold the position it will take them in and out if you like of their correct zones and then after that session give you a percentage of time spent in position because what i do notice is once you've got a good position if you can practice that if it's been improved on a prior position you might find that it's slightly less um watts that you put out but you're better at overcoming the wind because you can hold a good position if you can hold a good position you're always going to have less buffeting from winds what you put in at the pedals will either give you more speed or mean that you can put slightly less in at the pedals and go that speed. And it's, it's interesting to see where we've now got people that have been doing it, you know, six months, they've got a better position, they're riding faster, they're doing PBs off of slightly less power as their body is still, um, you know, early season at this point. And you see that sportive rider, time trialist, triathlete, duathlete, actually everybody's got that uh you know drag is drag is bad type scenario so anything you can do to to learn about this whole positioning system uh helps people and it's quite nice to think they've they've only got so much power but if you can hone in somebody's ability to hold a position it's really great getting a text from somebody saying wow i've just got i've just got a course pb off a slightly less watts even better and after several weeks of i've just got another pb off a slightly different watts you realize that you've found it and i always do the calculation what should it be and you sort of say oh yeah that's that rider again look it's another 22 watt you know a 22 watt scenario i'm not everyone gets 22 some people it's perhaps been as low as you know 10 they ride at a lower speed they're already quite aero um there might be an ironman athlete and they they have compromises to how low they can go but routinely there are plenty of people that have found um 25 and 30 watts and it's staggering to think it but when you look at their position and then they say it just looks so much better now you think well that's really what you look at the best positions you never look at somebody and think they're really aero but that looks like a horrible position really aero positions always look good look good nobody looks aero and looks bad in it and, and another thing that uh, a couple of guys that are good two tiers that i 
kind of deal with or chat to, they always take pictures of themselves or get a partner to take pictures of when they're riding either turbo training or when they're out doing their local 10. And you get a bit of an idea actually from that as well, which is quite a nice, you know, I'm not saying automatically take a picture if it looks wrong, start changing it, but you get a better idea of, of, you know, where you think you may be able to improve without having to do a massive amount of work. So yeah, well, that's, that's, that's nice little additives to your, uh, system there yeah yeah um we haven't done a podcast for quite a couple of months and then this one's going to go out within about two and a bit weeks of the other one so i didn't want to make this one uh, hugely long but i do want to do something on this paper which i think you've bought as well haven't you is this which one the power one yeah which it's out there um it's headed by uh thomas mayer it's a group that were at the um uh, Swiss Federation Institute of Sport um, and it was basically looking at various aero uh, aero so aero on the brain um, various cycle power meters and how accurate they are in terms of they took 54 power meters they took uh, various um, cyclists uh, 19 were elite 13 were recreational and they just took different systems and tried to measure using, actually, I'm not even going to try and explain the calibration protocol and even the diagram with a bike on a treadmill and strain gauges and all manner of, I mean, it was, it was, it was a good attempt at trying to start power measurement, but there's a few uh, methodological sort of like hiccups in terms of, you know, there, there weren't equal numbers of the power meters tested. Some of them, they only tested one which is pretty, that's pretty harsh on some of the systems just to give one data point. So and others, and others had, others had, let's have a look, uh, others had like mm, 12, 13 data points. So I can go down all, should I go down all the list of the products? You can do, but first of all, what I would say is what is this studying to, to explain to people? What yeah. is the studying, what is the study trying to find? So it's trying to find the accuracy of the power meters against a known, um, force and a known uh, treadmill scenario, which is the riders effectively um, having to, to work against the treadmill dropping downwards with um, various weighted amounts put on... Pulling them back. Pulling them back. Yeah, yeah. And each of those represents a certain amount of power that the rider therefore has to pedal against. So each time you get several data points for each of the systems, they um, utilise... Power meters from SRM, Power Tap, Quark, Quark, can never say that. Uh, stages, uh, Infocrank, which is Verve Cycling, Power to Max, Garmin, Polar, and Rotor. Um, but some of them had one tested, some had three, and some had 13. And I'm not giving away the whole study. It's out there. If you want it, you have to buy it, and, and then you can read it and get totally bamboozled. However, the results certainly were that there were, there were more variable systems and other systems and again i'm not like i'm not i'm not saying i couldn't say who it is but i don't think it's fair to report data that maybe is not as i want to say it's biased but it's it's if it if all of them were 10 units bought direct from the manufacturers and you know all the cyclists were professionals and therefore you'd reduce the errors that might be there then i wouldn't mind saying you know what this study's done this this and this and this is what they found but because there's immediately 
some systems that don't get the full crack of the whip, I don't think it's worth percolating that out there because some of them people say, oh, such and such, but that was out. Yeah, that was one data point or that was only three data points or, well, that one had 13 data points, but who knows whether the one with one data point was as much spread as the other systems. You can't really take, you know, you can't take N equals one for one manufacturer and N equals 13 for another. So it's a starting point and I commend the people that have done it, but there are certain things that that you you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to base your accuracy of whether or not to get a certain brand based on this but there are certain brands that have definitely um, come out not quite so good who we would say from your uh, uh, consumer uh, experience with uh, people that have bought them or have have talked to you about them and my experience as a coach with people that have got certain systems there are certain systems you know actually it's um, yeah it's 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 what you pay for it's what you get um, it's a good start, and I think we'll see other people either take their data and start to look at it. They they actually talk about several other papers that were um, tested by other people. So there's a an increasing independent amount of analysis of these systems. Can we give away the percentage of accuracy through the whole range? So not not picking out the specifics, just, oh, across just the range, whole, yeah, across the whole range. Well, again, it does it um, from the worst to the to the best. Well, we don't have to. It's fine. But it, it was plus or minus five percent being the worst, was it? Um, well, it's depend. They they have the they have the mean deviation and they have oh, the right, coefficient yes, of variation. Sorry, yeah. And I don't, uh, I don't know what they did in terms of their stats without going back over and talking about what the um, data analysis was about. But they did a um, a calculation on the um, the uh, relative deviation of the of the system. And again, the ones with the bigger numbers were the ones we'd suggest. But when they haven't got equal data points per system, system yeah. you can't really you can't say that one system had this amount of deviation. It's only one data point. And if on even on some of the worst performing model that there is if you took one of their data points and you can see the you can see the line here so it's that brand there if you took that one data point yeah they would be within all the others yeah the fact that the other data points drop as low as you know the deviation did drop as as low as nine percent then clearly if you pick the one data point on that brand it would have said whoa it's nine percent if you picked another one it'd be like oh it was actually only plus one percent so so i don't think you can even give an average because they haven't got an equal number of dots and 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 the dots even the dots for the some of the quoted more um should we say more accurate systems are still not as tight as some systems that have actually only got you know one or two dots so i think it will it will start and it's it is certainly a better way of starting to say i think what are actual riders systems likely to show because these were people if you read into and actually read it they weren't out the box put on by you know train mechanics in the exact way they know they were people on their bikes with their systems and some of them were systems owned by um i think by the institute they weren't all in identical they don't all say each one of them is one month old each one of them was a year old they were actually all all variable and um they were uh they were they were not comparing apples with apples 
And it's it's certainly created quite a few stories on the internet and people reporting about it. But I think from the point of view that it's not an equal look at all systems, people should be very wary about taking anything too literal from it. Well, let's, yeah, let, let, let's put it in its simplest form. Having that kind of information is better than not having it. Oh, as, yeah. As in yeah, power yeah, meters. Yeah. As, as, as a starting point, it will be looked back and people will go, wow, yeah, why, 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 I mean, if you think about it, why didn't they do it? Well, if you took 12 systems and you had to buy, even if you bought six systems for each of them, you think six systems from most of the people, you are talking a lot of budget for somebody to basically do the job of what each of those manufacturers should be doing, which is comparing their system with everybody else's. But independent research, if it's done enough times, even if it's slightly variable with what they do and how they do it, um, if they all start saying this band was really variable, and, oh, this is quite robust, and this one seems to be quite good, at least it's going to increase the total base of knowledge about it. Because there are some systems that we know are clearly variable, and people are still buying them, and they're still believing them. And if this variation, you no, know, they they've measured them there, and they're saying brand X, there was many of them that were minus seven, eight, and nine percent, right? So. That means you could be way out. You could be actually riding fine and the numbers could be way out. But what you've got to clarify with this is certain power meters read a certain amount of times a second. Yeah. So when, when you buy a power meter and it says its accuracy is plus or minus 2%, plus or minus 2.5%, that's not that, that overall figure that you're seeing could be out by plus or minus 2.5%. But it could be out by that every time it reads. So say it reads 62 times a second. Mm. It could be out by plus or minus two and a half percent, which is you know five percent overall, yeah. plus or minus. And I don't, out. and I think what they've got to do because sometimes, even when I look at stats, and even having done some stats, sometimes stats can actually really confuse you with with ways in which they put across some of the things. Because if you divide enough numbers by enough numbers, you can come up you with a completely get the, different number. Well, you but, always get the number that you almost want. If you yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it's. Um, it's it's definitely a case that it's a start and there are and it and i don't know why it got because there's other people that have done this but for some reason it really really got quite a bit of a um uh, a bit of news because the moment it came out i saw i'd seen the study come out on a feed that i get through a journal so i got it then i saw people writing about it and then somebody contacted me from a manufacturer about it and there was suddenly like, lots of people were sort of looking at it but how it has been concluded with people in the know that are in the industry is that it sort of tells us what we know but also nobody uh should take all of that data and take it as that's it that's the bottom line we still need bigger uh studies of which probably your recall rate and your knowledge of how people get their numbers and and what i see in numbers you know some systems i'm like okay that's a pretty good guess but it's not great and others are like i'll take that number and we'll go with it because i know it's robust and they all vary and people like to quote the best numbers and won't quote the worst ones and they do go wrong from time to time some of them just when people want the data and just when their coaches want their data they get the wrong reading or they don't set it up right or the batteries go so the whole area has an element of inaccuracy because we're talking humans and we're talking computers and we're talking batteries so all of those things can potentially go wrong but what what i what i was a bit um 
I suppose I was a bit sceptical on was how some people reported it, and I don't think they read the methodology. They read the abstract, and the abstract reads a bit different to what went on, and you wouldn't realise quite what had gone on. And unless you read the whole paper, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, unless, and, and, and I, don't, I don't think, if I remember rightly, that, um, yeah, if you read, I think, the abstract, it said the units... And it said from manufacturers, but it didn't say how many data points there were from each one. And when I first saw it, and I saw the abstract, and I thought, well, I'm going to buy this anyway. And then when I read it, it went, whoa, I thought it was equally spread over all of them, which is how you do it. If, if which magazine did, you know, two DVD, two DVD recorders or something from each manufacturer, they would do it from each manufacturer. They wouldn't give one of them 10 and somebody else one and somebody else one. So I think that, that you've got to be very careful with the uh, you know with the, the reporting of accuracy with parameters as to who does it in what scenario and how do they do it certainly the you know the jig and stuff was um, you know was a way of trying to make it more accurate and I'm sure from here on we'll learn more well that's it and from my point of view as in um, helping people make the right choice towards a power meter. Um, you don't automatically go for the lowest figure, you know, yeah. the lowest figure of accuracy. Um, it, it is true to a certain extent when people say, well, surely if you're riding and testing with that, that unit all the time, then, you know, you get the same wrong figure. It's not no, always no. the case. But Joe and I disagree to a certain point where Joe is facts and figures man. He, he wants as close to accuracy as you can get, which I totally understand. But... The information that you get from a power meter is still your information. Yeah, it's not yeah. an elite. You know, yeah. you've bought a stages, for instance. Um, you know, you're not uh, you're not a sky rider. Yeah. You know, so you're not getting Sky's reading from that. You're getting your reading. You yeah, know, you don't yeah. buy Info Crank and you know it be uh, British Cycling uh, readings that you get. It's always going to be relative to to the yeah, rider yeah, to you. Yeah. So you know, don't think, oh God, I'm not going to buy that power meter now, or I'm not yeah. going to go and get a power meter because you know the accuracy is not good enough. I'm going to wait. The accuracy has been there or thereabouts. Mm. You know, nothing has got so much better. Yeah. You know, there are a couple of brands out there which you would probably automatically point to and go, you know, they they have, you know, they are the kings of it so far. Um, but I would still, I would still have a power meter every day. Yeah. Regardless of whether I thought it was accurate or not accurate, uh, because that information and the heart rate helps me more yeah, yeah, know absolutely. about yeah, how yeah, I ride yeah, and how yeah, I can ride yeah, yeah. than having nothing at all. Yeah. And I think before we finish that, I'd just like to say with power, um, people vary hugely in their in their power. There are people that what they can do for an Ironman uh, is what other people can't even do at the end of a ramp test. Okay. The uh, accurately measured, because it was done with a system before he did it, you know, when... Miguel Indurain broke the hour record. It was very close to or at 500 watts for an hour. And people are still like befuddled. And it's like, well, you know, he was a big unit. He won the Tour de France. He could still go uphill fast. He, he well, clearly had to have a power level that was not really the power level of most Tour de France winners. But sometimes people do, A, take a power number and always want to have somebody else's numbers and you won't you know you've got your stats and once you are trained and once you're doing things right you need to learn how to use those numbers not how to make your numbers into somebody else's i think two you take a while before those numbers can actually be meaningful as to how do they relate across different distances across 
different efforts across even you know even even different um, decades. You know, looking back on, on power data, I think the first power data I've got is from about eighty eight or eighty nine. You know, accurate power data, proper accurate. Did you have electricity though? Just it was just in, yeah, <laughs> that was nineteen eighty eight, not eighteen eighty eight. But no, you you kind of you know you learn to think. Well, yeah, I really did think that was kind of like that was the you know, the only knowledge was this about this. We've learned more about what the you know, what the power numbers mean. But I think importantly, see is that you've got to be able to to use power ultimately to make a well an informed decision based on other things as well not just you know always believe the power meter sometimes it is wrong sometimes it will fail and sometimes you can do what you've never done before because you're just on one of those days and you suddenly have done your uh, you know 200 watts for a 10 mile time trial and you've never done more than 191 and you just do that and you get your PB and some of it is in the power meter measured it right. But also you were the one that derived that power. You just got that extra little bit out of your system. However, power meters don't just mean you can level the playing field and everybody's going to produce the same power. There are huge differences and working with different levels of athlete. Sometimes you have to reset with certain athletes. You just forget how much power they can produce. You've got to totally reset the numbers that you're talking about. And if you can do that because you understand the percentages, what it means in terms of calories per hour, what it means in terms of how far they're going, etc., etc. Actually, it is a very informed way of being able to certainly be better than just guessing guessing stuff. that's what i was but gonna say yeah. if we can get more robust systems then what we'll find is that the numbers that people are talking about and certainly the way in which it's accurately um repeating itself week in week out actually gives us a sense that the um the numbers are not just fictitious they are actually real and i think you've hit the nail on the head is you know i i train with some guys that put out Big watts, ridiculous amounts of watts. Now I know I am not that rider. I can't, I can't physically put out those watts, but I don't automatically go. Well, I'm going to adjust my training, um, my training zones because they can put. Out, but I can stay with them on a climb. You know, I can. I, I can stay, it, it's utterly, utterly irrelevant. Yeah. You know, you, you know, my my best mate, uh, my best mate Trevor's got. You know, he, he only puts out like thirty watts more than me. Um, so I reckon if I can train myself up, don't use his. Yeah. You know, you've got your own. I've I've run a power tap or a um, power system now for. I've got various ones actually. Um, between I reckon nine years. Yeah. Probably, I've probably got nine or ten years worth of data. The first six months that I had my first power meter, didn't even look at the powers, just recorded what went on, used it for training, used it for racing, and then kind of looked at it and went, oh, that's it. Then did a power test and then thought, right, well, this is, well, Joe did the power test for me. This is what we need to be doing. And Was that Max you did that day? Oh, what did you tell me? Yeah, no, I think it was reading a little bit low. Oh, so was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 190 yeah. was a bit low. Yeah, <laughs> but don't automatically think because you've got the power meter that you can just go straight. Or and, quit, Martin. Hide, hide. That you can go straight and just ride to Dave's power or Trevor's power or Sue's power. Um, you know, your power is your power. It's pure yeah. and simple. But having that power meter does give you the knowledge, gives you the armory for yeah. you to make yourself better, regardless of I suppose accuracy or not. Again, you know, we we can agree to disagree, um, but. Certain brands are better at it than others, but I would rather have that power meter and my training zones mm. than anything else. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And if you have power questions, it's quite good to be able to talk numbers and give give people some reassurance as to you know as to what they're doing and what uh, 
Yeah, what, what what do their numbers actually mean? And you know, very good riders, very strong climbers. However, you do it, you know, people that are very good at particular aspects of sport produce those very impressive numbers, and they've got just a different engine and a different set of numbers with which to relate. But it's it's still they can still get it wrong. A rider with a big engine, and I've had plenty of athletes that have done that that they've just got it wrong. The ones that just they're methodical about trying to do what they know is possible is good. When somebody's got a number and it's a threshold of, I've got to be able to do 200 for this, or I've got to be able to do, you know, 300 for this, or why should I only do this? It's like, well, that might be your limiting factor is getting your head around the fact you have your engine and that number and not try and go beyond that number, particularly for the triathletes and duathletes, you've got to do your number. And having had a few texts today for people doing, you know, uh Ironmans and, and, and a half Ironmans this week. what they were doing is they were, they were giving that whole um we're right on that power aren't we it should be such and such shouldn't we and 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 actually um it was yeah this is the number we've talked about nothing's changed your system isn't you know isn't def- isn't uh isn't at the swanee you've got to particularly with pacing, can be a 10-mile time trial, can be a, a duathlon as you run onto the bike, can be a triathlon as you swim and then get on the bike. You've still got to believe that on race day, that sometimes your legs don't just feel that extra fresh and maybe there's a bit more today. You've got to make sure you keep to the plan. Sometimes racing is just go for it, but not if it's a triathlon where you just go for it on the bike because it, w- it will fail on the uh, on the run. However, for the time trialists, sometimes they, they have to gamble a bit because that's it. They have nothing after the bike. So you either, you know, have to uh, soak a very lot of uh, pain and discomfort in the last quarter of your event or actually get away with it. And that day, that was the right number. So send in your power questions because it would be really useful um, for us to uh, talk about it. And we're quite happy to do it in relation to heart rate. If you didn't have power or you train in the gym on a watt bike with power, but what does that mean when you go on the road and you haven't got a power meter? That's that's a, a quite a common scenario. So I think we say thank you very much to the listeners for going on this long. Thank you again. Yes, we appreciate the, the reviews, the ratings, the uh, tweeted questions, the questions via um, email. We don't get people now um, sending letters or leaving uh, um, messages on the answer phone. People don't do that anymore. It's all tweets and Facebook Good. and stuff. So contact with the questions. Uh, click the contact button at coachjoebeer.com. Also follow at Southport Racing and at Coach Joe Beer. And thank you for listening. This is the 153rd episode and this is going out for June 2017. And we look forward to your questions. And by the time we get to record in the July, we won't be far off the Tour de France and all of that malarkey. We'll be saying Merry Christmas soon. I know we will. So remember, train smart. And have fun. That's the end then. Did it, did it, did it, did it, did it.